As we begin our study, I want to note that John the Baptist is one of the most important persons in the New Testament, and he's mentioned at least 89 times. John was given the special privilege of introducing Jesus to the nation of Israel, and he was also given the difficult task of preparing the nation to receive their Messiah. He's also one of seven persons named in the Gospel of John who gave witness that Jesus is God. Now, in our text tonight, we're going to cover four days in the life of John the Baptist, Jesus, and the first disciples. And our text is set about 40 days after Jesus' baptism and after the temptation in the wilderness. And I just want to reiterate once again that as we study this gospel, we need to keep in mind the Apostle John's purpose in writing the gospel. He said that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose, and we need to really understand that in all that we study. So tonight we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 to 51. And I've divided the verses into three sections. First, in verses 19 to 24, we're going to look at the witness of John the Baptist to the Jewish leaders. Then in verses 25 to 34, we're going to see how John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. And then in verses 35 to 51, we're going to look at how John points his disciples to Jesus. So let's first look at the witness of John the Baptist to the Jewish leaders in verses 19 to 24. And I'll go ahead and read these verses. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. So on this first day, notice, first of all, that John, the gospel writer, states that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist some questions. Now, this term, the Jews, here refers to the Sanhedrin, which was the uh, Supreme Court, if you will, uh, of the Jews, and it was made up of chief priests and elders and scribes, 70 members in all. And this term was very significant to John, uh, the gospel writer, because he uses it 70 times in his gospel to identify the Jewish leaders who at some times opposed Jesus. Uh, now, the Sanhedrin was commissioned by God way back in Numbers, chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, where God tells Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, 
whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. So the members of the Sanhedrin were appointed to help in judging the people of Israel, and they were also the custodians and guardians of the faith. The Sanhedrin, therefore, felt it was their right to investigate John the Baptist and his ministry, especially since in the wilderness he was drawing a lot of people to hear him and to be baptized as a sign of repentance. So the Sanhedrin sent priests and Levites as their representatives from Jerusalem to ask him three questions. Now, the first question they asked was, who are you? And the underlying question, which we can draw from John's answer, was actually, are you the Messiah? You see, there was an expectancy of the Messiah's coming. Promises of a coming Messiah were given in many places in the Torah and in the Psalms. And we don't have enough time to go through all these, but I'll give you just a few. For example, Genesis 3.15, the promises given there in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, when God spoke to Abraham. In Genesis 22.8, when God again spoke to Abraham on Mount Moriah. And then in Psalm 2, Psalm 22, 53, 110, and in many other places. So they were expecting a warrior king who would wipe out all their enemies and deliver them from their oppressors. Luke states in his gospel, in Luke 3:15, quote, As the people were in expectation, all reasoned in their hearts about John the Baptist, whether he was the Christ or not. So people were thinking about this. They weren't quite sure who he was, and they knew he was a great preacher, and he talked about God, and so they wondered. And the Jews wondered as well, are you the Messiah? And so John the Baptist was able to say, I am not the Christ. And for those of you who may not know, that title Christ um, comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one or chosen one. It's also the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. So here John is clearly uh, declaring to these representatives that he is not the Messiah. The second question the representatives asked John was, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, again, the prophet Elijah, through prophecy, was expected as the forerunner of the Messiah. And we've learned that a messenger or a forerunner in ancient times went before a king's procession. Whenever a king was going to go to a certain area, this forerunner would be sent out ahead of it. And they would announce and they would prepare the people for his arrival. And they would also indicate which route the king was going to take. And to be sure that any obstacles on the road were, were removed so that the king's procession could come by easily. And in the same way, the prophet Elijah is prophesied to be coming before the Messiah to prepare the people for his arrival. 
but this will be at Jesus' second coming. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that's speaking of the end times. Now, John the Baptist came in the power and the spirit of Elijah, fulfilling the ministry of this forerunner for Jesus in Jesus' first coming. He called the people to repent of their sins and to prepare their hearts to receive the Messiah. In Luke 1, verses 16 and 17, the angel told Zacharias, who was John the Baptist's father, about his answered prayer for a son. And the angel foretold about his son, saying, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And even Jesus himself noted that in a sense, John was Elijah when he said in Matthew 11 verses 14 and 15, he told the multitudes, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah to come. So John was not Elijah in the flesh, nor was he the complete fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah, but he was a type of Elijah. So when asked by the representatives of the Jews if he was Elijah, John declared, I am not. The third question the representatives asked John was, are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses told the Israelites, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, and him you shall hear. And then continuing down in verses 18 and 19, God tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So this is a messianic prophecy speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the prophet to come. So again, John could answer, no, he was not the prophet. Then the representatives said to John, well, then who are you? What do you say about yourself? And, you know, John could have said a lot of things about himself. And I love what uh, Pastor X said in his notes on this chapter. He said, John had many reasons to be proud. He had a miraculous birth, a prophesied destiny, a calling to personally fulfill great prophetic promises. He was a powerful preacher and a man with a great following. You know, but instead of talking about himself, John focused on the work that he was called to do by God, being the forerunner to prepare the people to receive their Messiah. And so he quoted to them from Isaiah 40, verse 3, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That was his message. That's what he came to give. And I find it interesting that John the Baptist describes himself as a voice. 
you know, a voice which cannot be seen, a voice which does not speak of itself. John was the voice sent to talk about Jesus. He was the voice that pointed people to Jesus. And he was the voice preparing the people for the coming of Jesus. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what kind of voice am I? Am I always talking about myself, my accomplishments, my family, um, the things that I love about this world? You know, am I busy being a voice that is critical of others or gossiping instead of encouraging and reconciling? Or am I making time to talk to others about Jesus, about him as Messiah who died for their sins and wants a personal relationship with each and every person, about what he has done and is doing in my life? I think we've gotten away from that. You know, when's the last time you called up a friend and said, hey, I just want to share with you what the Lord did for me today or yesterday or last week? You know, we need to share those stories. We need to know that the Lord is working among us and those stories encourage us and lift us up and comfort us in ways that nothing else can. Am I pointing people to Jesus and to his word when they're afraid? or anxious, or hurt, or angry, or need direction, or comfort? Am I preparing them for the rapture and for Jesus' second coming? You know, as Christians, we're called to proclaim the good news and to share about Jesus and God's word with others. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. You know, when we speak to others about Jesus, about how he's working in our lives on a daily basis, he becomes real to others and not just some theological concept or a crutch, as some people call him. And best of all, when we speak to others about Jesus, he is there with us. Jesus said in Matthew eighteen twenty, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So we can see that John witnessed powerfully in both word and deed to the Jewish leaders. This brings us to the second point in our study, how John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God in verses 25 to 34. And these verses say, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, 
Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So here we see the representatives of the Sanhedrin continuing to question John uh, about his actions. And now they want to know, why is he baptizing if he's not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You see, the Jews, they did practice baptism. and But it was more of an outgrowth of ceremonial washings and only for Gentiles wanting to become Jews. But John was baptizing Jews, which put them in the same class as the Gentile converts, and this was very disconcerting to the Jewish religious leaders. So then John begins to explain to them that he is baptizing in water for repentance, and this baptism demonstrated a person's humble willingness to repent, to be cleansed, and to prepare for the coming Messiah. John also declared to them that there was one standing among them whom they did not know, and this person was ranked higher than John, and John was not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. Now, one commentator I read said that the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that a teacher might require just about anything of his followers except to have them take off his sandals because it was considered too humiliating to demand. And so it became the duty of the lowliest slave of the house. And yet John, in his great humility, said that he was unworthy to even do this for Jesus. And I think we need to ask ourselves, is there anything too low for me to do for Jesus? Do I seek to serve only in ministries where I'm visible and where my service can be seen by others? Or am I content to serve in the background, to do the menial tasks, the stuff nobody else wants to do? to serve without recognition, knowing that my service is unto the Lord and that he sees my service and he sees the motive in my heart for serving. John is a good example of humility for us to follow. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three says, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in Colossians 3.12, Paul exhorts us, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You see, humility is something we must choose to put on. God's not just going to zap us with it. We have to choose to be humble. We have to choose to put on that humility. We have to choose to walk in humility every day. That's a conscious choice. You know, the world, ladies, tells us you need to look at yourself. Look at you. Look at your heart 
follow your heart. But Jesus tells us, oh, no, you look at me. You follow me and my ways. On the second day that our text is covering, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And when John saw Jesus, he exclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this description is unique to John the Baptist, and it's only found in the Gospel of John. And the Jews who heard it would understand that John was describing Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice. Because remember, this concept of sacrificing a lamb to atone for sins was deeply embedded in their minds because it was a part of their worship. Jesus, therefore, was greeted with the words declaring his destiny, his sacrificial agony and death on the cross for the sin of mankind. And in this one sentence, John the Baptist summarized the greatest work of Jesus to deal with the sin problem afflicting the human race. And remember that the lambs that the Israelites sacrificed covered their sins only temporarily, so they had to keep repeating these sacrifices. And the sacrifice for the nation was done only once a year on Yom Kippur. But Jesus' death on the cross as the Lamb of God would be enough to atone for every sin and cleanse every sinner who believes in him as Messiah. And no other sacrifice is needed to atone for our sins. In Romans 6.10, Paul declares about Jesus, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And again, in Hebrews 9.12, Paul says of Jesus, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that's why Jesus was able to say on the cross, It is finished. But this gift of eternal life and forgiveness of our sins must be received willingly by every individual. Jesus does not force us to take it. He only offers it as a gift. And the way we receive it is by faith, by believing that Jesus is the Messiah sent by the Father to die in our place and to pay our sin debt in full. And once we receive Jesus' free gift, We are said to be born again to a new life filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus further declared in John 3, 16 and 17, which most of us know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And saved from what? From the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so if there's anyone here tonight who has not accepted Jesus' free gift of eternal life, it's easy to receive, 
All you have to do is pray to Jesus, admit to him that you're a sinner, ask him to forgive you of your sins, ask him to give you a brand new heart to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and then tell him, invite him to come into your heart to take up residence as Lord and Savior. And once you do this, then you are born again. Then after that, you need to start reading your Bible every day, and you need to pray, talk to Jesus, tell him anything you want to, uh, find a good Bible-teaching church, make some great Christian friendships, and watch how God will work in your life and begin to transform you as you study his word and put it into practice. Little by little, day by day, he will transform you into those godly women that he wants you to be. And if there's, if you don't feel comfortable and you want somebody to help you with that prayer, I'd be glad to lead you in that prayer after the study. Or any born-again Christian in this room can lead you in that prayer. So getting back to our text, beginning in verse 30, John the Baptist declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And once again, John points out what he had declared before, <clears throat> that Jesus came after him. John was six months older than Jesus. And Jesus is ranked higher than him. He also said that Jesus was before him, declaring Jesus' preexistence. And then in verse 31, John states that he did not know Jesus, his cousin, but was sent to reveal him to the nation of Israel. And then finally, in verses 32 and 33, John declares what he witnessed at Jesus' baptism. Now, Jesus had no sin that needed cleansing, but he wanted to be baptized in order to identify with sinful man and to fulfill all righteousness, which he declared in Matthew 3.15. And John declared that he did not know Jesus personally, but the Father had told him, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John did see the Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove and remained on him. <clears throat> and Matthew tells us in Matthew 3.17 that a voice was also heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So John then knew that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. John knew that Jesus was truly the Lamb of God. And this brings us to the third point in our study, how John points his disciples to Jesus in verses 35 to 51. So let's first look at verses 35 to 42. They say, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. 
and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So this is the third day that our study is covering. And on this day, we see John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples. And one is identified as Andrew. And the other, though not identified, is generally believed to be John, the gospel writer himself. Then Jesus comes walking by again, and the text says that John the Baptist was looking at Jesus. And this phrase, looking at Jesus, in the Greek conveys the idea that he was looking at Jesus with steadfastness and attention. You know, I could just imagine he was just watching him coming. And then John said to his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, look. There goes the Messiah. John was a true and faithful witness, and he knew that his mission was not to gather disciples to himself, but to point them to Jesus. You know, he was perfectly satisfied to have his disciples leave his circle and follow Jesus. Later on in chapter 3, John the Baptist will describe himself as the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. You know, John rejoiced. He wasn't envious. He wasn't jealous because he understood who he was and what he was called to do. And so at John's proclamation, the two disciples began to follow Jesus And then Jesus turned around and seeing them following him, asked them, what do you seek? And I thought it was interesting to note, Jesus didn't say, who do you seek? He asked, what do you seek? You know, many people are interested in what they can get and how they can benefit from someone. So perhaps the Lord was trying to have them check their motives. What do you seek? And I think we need to ask ourselves, why do I follow Jesus? Am I interested only in what I can get from him? Like one dealing with a genie in a lamp to fulfill all of my desires? Am I here for a job? Am I following him for a husband, more money? Am I following him because my family and friends follow him? Or do I follow him because I truly believe that he is the Messiah and Redeemer of my life? And I have a real desire to know him personally and to follow his ways. And in answer to Jesus' questions, the disciples answered, Rabbi, where are you staying? And you know, maybe it's just me, but they answered his question with a question. And usually when people do that, one, they don't want to answer, or they don't know how to answer, or they're just kind of caught off guard, you know. And as I was thinking about this, I tried to put myself uh, in the text And I'm standing there, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And I was like, Oh, the Messiah. Wow. 
and I'm following Jesus. And he turns around and he goes, what do you seek? I would probably go, uh, where, where are you staying? <laughs> That's kind of how I saw it. I don't know. That's just my crazy head. I don't know. So anyway, Jesus was so gracious as always. So he tells them, come and see. You know, Jesus invites them to abide with him, to dwell with him, to remain with him. And it's, the text says that they went with him and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. And, you know, it must have been a very memorable event because John, the gospel writer, even noted the time of day, the 10th hour. It was four in the afternoon. The invitation that Jesus gave to these two disciples to abide with him is an invitation that Jesus gives to every person because the scripture says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, according to 2 Peter 3.9. And then in John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So John and Andrew become Jesus' first disciples. And the first thing that Andrew does is to go share this good news with his brother, Simon Peter. And Andrew tells Peter, we have found the Messiah And he takes Peter to Jesus. And isn't it natural, whenever we get some good news, we want to share it, usually with our family first, you know. And that's how most people come to faith in Christ also, by sharing it with our loved ones. And Andrew is always seen as bringing people to Jesus. You know, in John 6, 8, it was Andrew who brought the young boy with five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus. And also in John 12, verse 22, Andrew and Philip were approached by certain Greeks who wanted to see Jesus as well. So now let's look at verses 43 to 51. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read them. (laughs) But they talk about the fourth day that our text is covering and Jesus decides to go to the Galilee area because he has a divine appointment with Philip. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city as Andrew and Peter, which was near Capernaum. And when Jesus found Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Jesus and Philip did. Notice that oftentimes people come to Jesus through others. But sometimes the Lord contacts people directly. Then Philip goes to share the fact that he found the Messiah with Nathanael, who's also known as Bartholomew, who was from Cana. And he tells Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But Nathanael's Response was that of doubt, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, Nazareth was a small town. It was out in the sticks, if you will. You know, it was never mentioned by the historian Josephus. 
and it was not on any trade route that would give it any importance. And evidently, it didn't have too good of a reputation either. Even Jesus said that he could not work miracles there because of the people's unbelief in Matthew eleven twenty. And perhaps, too, since Nathaniel was a student of the word, he thought of Micah 5, 2, which said that the Messiah was to come out of Bethlehem. In any case, to Nathaniel's negative question, Philip simply said, come and see. And so when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile or deceit. And this was kind of a compliment by Jesus, I think, and perhaps a recognition of his blessedness. Psalm 32, 2 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. And so Nathanael asked Jesus, How do you know me? And Jesus proceeds to tell him that he saw him when he was under the fig tree. And it's interesting to note here that under the fig tree was a phrase which the rabbis used to describe meditation on the scriptures. And the fig tree is used in scripture to signify Israel. So perhaps Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree and was spending time in prayer and meditating on the scriptures when Jesus saw him. And Nathanael responded to Jesus by declaring, You are the Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. And both of these titles are the titles of Messiah. And then Jesus said to Nathanael, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And Nathaniel was amazed by what he had already saw in Jesus, what he had already seen, pardon me. But Jesus told him that there was much, much more to see, greater things than these. And then Jesus makes a promise to Nathaniel, and he marks the promise by the phrase, most assuredly. That guarantees the truthfulness and the certainty of the promise. And the promise was that Nathaniel would see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, most commentators believe that Jesus is referring to Jacob's dream of a ladder in Genesis 28.12, where Jacob saw a ladder from earth to heaven and angels were descending and ascending upon it. And perhaps this was the passage that Nathaniel might have been meditating on when Jesus saw him. Scripture doesn't say. In essence, Jesus is telling Nathaniel that he, Jesus, is the ladder. Jesus is the access by which man can come to God. Jesus is the bridge that brings heaven and earth together. Jesus bridges the infinite to the finite. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And 1 Timothy 2:5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
Nathaniel would also see Jesus ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives later on. And he would hear the angels speak to them in Acts 1, verses 9 to 11. And in verse 51, Jesus ends the promise by referring to himself as the Son of Man, which Jesus uses to depict his humanity through the Incarnation, another one of his wonderful titles. So in tonight's study, we've seen four days in the life of John the Baptist, Jesus, and the first disciples. We saw John's powerful witness to the Jewish leaders. We saw how he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God to his disciples. And we saw how Jesus' first disciples came to follow him. And as followers of Jesus, we too must be ready to witness for Jesus in our walk and in our talk. We need to be proclaimers of Jesus as the Lamb of God to those who don't know him. And we need to be true disciples of Jesus by studying his word and walking according to it.